guys don't know my story, so I was raised in a predominantly agnostic, atheist kind of family. And, um, you know, about the age of 14, I started wrestling with the four great philosophical questions, the ones we're going to address over the next four weeks. Uh, and these are the questions here, and if you have a bulletin, you can write them down there. Who, who am I? Right? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going when I die? And what is the purpose of life? I'll say those again. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going when I die? And what is the purpose of life? Or what is the meaning of life? And maybe at 14 you were not thinking about such things, but at 14 I was thinking about such things. Because I grew up in a really kind of crazy household environment and... um, I don't know. I just, these are the questions that gripped me. And at 14, 15, I came to realize that my atheistic answers to these questions were insufficient. And I remember what it was like being 14 and going, I've got to find better answers to this. Now, here's the thing. I'm old enough that there was no Google at this time. Well, there was Google, but we didn't really use it. We used um, Ask Jeeves. You guys remember Ask Jeeves? Right? It was like a butler and it was like, I will fetch you an answer. Like, I don't know, in 1997, people were like, this is a good search engine option right here. Uh, There's uh, uh, Alta Vista. Do you all remember that? AltaVista.com. I don't know why. That was kind of a thing too. And so, uh, but even though there were these primitive search engines, no one was getting online trying to find answers to deep philosophical questions, Googling it. And so I had to go to the library and research Greek mythology And I had to go to the library and research Hinduism and Islam. And I had to research Mormonism. And I had to research all these uh, prominent philosophical religious worldviews to try to answer these questions. And I remember what it was like when I finally shook my head and was like, oh, the Christians might be right. I remember when I had to put my tail between my legs and walk to the Bible and go, okay, Bible, okay, what do you got here? Do you got this for me? And I remember reading the Bible and finding the Christian answers to these four great questions, and I remember starting to come alive as a human being. Because the way that Christianity answers these four four questions is so compelling, and it's so overwhelmingly satisfying. And the thing that gets me most fired up about the next four weeks is we're going to get to look at the compelling answers to each of these major questions. And here is my prayer for all of us here today in the middle of March, as we're somewhat exhausted and still a little bit hungover from our flu medicine that we've been taking, right? As we're right here today, and some of you are like, you nailed me, right? Uh, Listen, here's what makes me so excited today, is I really believe that God wants you to fall more in love with him today by answering philosophical questions from scripture. I'm serious. I think it's very possible that as we walk through some of these mental exercises that start in our mind and begin to touch on our emotions and move towards our spirit, that, guys, our spirit is going to come alive more and more here over the next four weeks by doing some philosophy. Can I get an amen? This is going to be exciting, and I hope you're excited. But before we jump to these questions, I just want to pray and ask that God would awaken us to all that he wants to say here this evening. So would you pray with me? Just pray with me where you are right now. Jesus, come on with it in these four questions. Open our minds and our hearts and our spirits and our bodies to all that you want to do in dealing with the elementary things of reality, answering the four great philosophical questions. 
And would you not just make this a mental exercise, Jesus, but my prayer is would you open the hearts of our compassion to the neighbors we have around us by the on-fire logic that if this is true for everyone and our neighbors don't yet have an answer, then the way you want to fill in the gap is to move our hearts towards them that they may come to find answers in who you are. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, for your glory, for our good, and the good of the city that we love, Orlando. Amen. Amen. I'm actually move this because I kind of like this over here. That's okay. All right. Here's how I want to approach this, and I'm going to approach this with uh, each of the questions here. I want to ask four sub-questions of each of these questions. The question we're asking today is, who am I? Or who are we? And the four ways we're going to approach answering this question are as follows. Number one, I'm going to ask, what is the question actually saying? Like, what is it not saying? What is the question actually trying to get at? So what's the question? Why does answering this question matter? That's the second one. Once we get at that, then what's the answer to the question at hand? And then finally, if we have an answer, then what does that mean for my life? What's the practical takeaway in all of this? If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 17. We are just going to look at one verse there in Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to try not to step on Jason's uh, pedal board here. Um, And so let me go see if I can answer the first two questions before we jump into Acts 17. First, what's the question? Who am I? What is this question? A better way of asking this question is what is my essential essence? Or what am I? What am I made of? When I look in the mirror at myself, what am I looking at here? What, what does it mean to be a human? Uh, what is humanity? What is it that we're talking about here? What am I? Um, and we're going to talk about in a little bit why that question is so challenging for us, especially as millennials and um, postmoderns living in America in our time. But that's the basic question here. It's a question of identity. How should I primarily think about myself as I wake up each day and as I move around? What am I? That's the question. And here's why this question matters. This question matters uh, because the question of identity drives everything else we do. The question of identity, if we can answer it, it drives everything else we do as human beings. And answering this matters because of how often we we confuse the question of identity. And if we can understand, get clarification on the question of identity, it impacts everything else we think of. It impacts the other three questions. It impacts how we live our life. And as we gain clarity on the question of identity, um, we, we really gain clarity in two primary ways. The first way is this. Uh, it helps actually prevent us from mistakes. By gaining the question a clarity of the question of identity, it prevents us from making mistakes. Um, if we know who we are, it's going to prevent us from making a number of mistakes in our life. And I'll give you just a kind of, kind of silly illustration or example or an analogy of this. Um, a few weeks ago, as I was growing out my beard, you know, for No Shave November, a, a, a bunch of us manly men and one very manly lady, uh, we all decided to grow out our beards. She grew out her uh, leg hair situation thing, and it was all good, right? She has a boyfriend. It's cool. Anyway, um, 
so as I was growing out my beard, I did the thing where it was my, one of the last shaves before I was about to grow my beard out, and I was in a hurry. And the way that our shower is set up is that I have like glass all around me, and then there's a counter right outside, and then there's a mirror on the other side of the counter that my wife uses. So I can see through the glass of the shower case, and I can see the mirror, but it's, it's foggy. And so it's fogged up the glass here, and it's fogged up the mirror there. And I had my wife's like leg razor in there, and I was like, man, do I want to get out of the shower and uh, it was, remember when it was real cold in Orlando for a while? Right, okay. So I was like, man, do I want to get out of the shower? And do I want to, uh, I mean, because it's going to be cold if I get out of the shower and go get my razor. So how about I just use my wife's razor, her leg razor? And how about I use her leg shaving cream? Because it's all the same, right? Anyway, uh, so don't tell my wife I did this because she doesn't know. But anyway, uh, but so I just, I was like, yeah, I'm going to save time. I'm going to do this. So I'm, I don't have a mirror that's close. I have the mirror that's way over here. It's about six feet away. And I have the glass in between, and it's all foggy. So I can kind of see myself, and I was like, this is good enough, right? So I do the whole thing where I'm like, protect the sideburns, but maybe, okay, so I'm holding it and just shaving, right? And I'm looking through, and I'm like, I think I got everything, right? And do the neck and everything, and I'm feeling, I'm doing the feel afterwards. Like, okay, I think I got all of this, all the shaving cream's off. Okay, I think I'm good to go. So I get out, I clean up, I put on my clothes, I take my daughter to school, drop her off. I get into the office and I walk around. And all day as I'm walking around, people are looking at me and they're just like. <laughs> so that's the choice that you made today. Okay, that's cool. Maybe this is what young people are doing, right? But everyone's just like, hey, Doug, did you shave this morning? And I was like, yes, I did, man. I'm, I'm thinking I must have done a really good job because everyone's like, did you shave this morning? Uh, so finally, I go until after lunch and I walk into the, the bathroom in our offices and I look in the mirror and there's just like a strip of hair. Like I have a vertical mustache just like right here on the face. And I look at myself and I go, you idiot, right? Like number one, there's no way I can drive to a Publix right now and shave it. I'm just gonna have to go the rest of the day and get it when I get home. But number two, why didn't you just get out and look cleanly in a mirror and make sure that you got everything because you've been walking around all day with just this vertical mustache here, like you're some kind of really weird Picasso painting, right? And this is a, this is a great illustration, right? I could not identify who I was and get uh, adequate feedback into my being, and it led to this social mistake. Now, this was something that's easily correctable and something that wasn't really that big of a faux pas, but just imagine what it's like for many of us who walk around and we don't know who we are, the kind of mistakes we walk into over and over and over again. And if we would just gain clarity on our identity, we would prevent a number of these mistakes in our lives. If we really knew who we are, we would know who we weren't. And therefore, we wouldn't keep following things we shouldn't be following or doing things we shouldn't be doing or looking for love in all the wrong places because we know who we are. And so we're not going to keep making those knucklehead mistakes over and over again. Knowing who we are matters because it prevents us from making mistakes. And one of the biggest problems that I observe, that we observe uh, in America right now is this, and that is that we mistake our question one with our question four. The biggest problem in America is that we associate question one with question four. When we ask the question, who am I? We immediately jump to the purpose one. What is my purpose? And we begin to define ourselves, not by who we are, but by what we do or what we're trying to achieve or what we should be expending our energies in, we begin to think about ourselves as primarily economic objects. 
And therefore, our whole metric system is based on what can we produce, what can we yield, what can we be a part of, what value am I bringing to society? And we've never, ever addressed the first basic question here. I want us to get to question four. But may I just submit to you as your pastor, you shouldn't even attempt to answer question four, the question of purpose, until you isolatedly answer the question of identity, who am I? There's a second reason why um, it would be really helpful why it matters to answer this question. It's not only so that we can prevent mistakes, it's also so that we can focus, so that we can focus on our real opportunities, so that we can focus on our real opportunities. And what I mean by this is if we know who we are, if we really know who we are, then the doors that we should walk through as God starts to open doors in our lives, if we know who we are, it actually clarifies which doors fit us and which doors don't fit us. I have a deep suspicion that many of us in this room have a lot of anxiety around some of the opportunities that come in our lives. And we're anxious, not so much because we have so many opportunities or so too few opportunities. It's because, because we don't know who we are, we're not sure if we should fit in that door here or this door here or this door here or this door here. Knowing who we are actually uh, provides this lens that we can look at opportunities and go, that's the one I should walk through. Or these three would be great ones. Those four over there would not be great ones. And let me just tell kind of a silly uh, thought experiment to, to maybe illustrate this. Uh, I was trying to think about us and, and how identity works. And so I want you to imagine with me that you have some um, uh, rich, old relative, great-grandfather, great-grandmother, great-aunt, twice removed by divorce, whatever, you know, you have, right, situation. But you get a letter in the mail one day, and great-aunt says, or relative says uh, in this note, hey, I've left you a house, and inside the garage, you'll find everything you need for life. And so you go, awesome, right? Because rent in Orlando is stupid expensive, right? So you're like, it's free. All I have to do is pay taxes. What are taxes? Taxes are taken care of. Amazing, right? That's just like the best gift ever. And it's in a good location in town, centrally located. You're like, I can host a life group. Yes, right? Like you're just so excited. And I want you to imagine you walk into this garage and you see this junk that's underneath a tarp. And as you try to move the junk, you're like, oh man, this junk's really heavy. I'm not gonna deal with that. But you realize, hey, there's this, there's just this junk in a garage, but there's this space over here. And you look at your situation and you go, well, my, my job is actually pretty close to this house and I have a bike uh, that I can ride. So here's what I'll do. I'll just ride my bike to work and I'll live here and that'll be a great arrangement. And you decide that the best way to store your bike is to take some rope, tie it around the junk under the tarp, put it through a pulley cable into a hook in the, in the uh, garage ceiling and then bring it down. And then you could like pull it up and you can hang your bike uh, with a counterbalance of all that junk that's under the tarp over here. You guys getting a picture of what I'm talking about? You're like, man, this is really sturdy junk. It's heavy. It keeps it there. So I'm using it as a counterbalance. I'll hang my bike at night, and that's what you do. You take your bike off the, the pulley system. You ride it to work. You ride it home. You hang it up. This is your existence. You have a house. You have a bike. You have a job. Everything's great until one day you come out of your job, and your bike, which was hooked up in a little thing outside, is now stolen, and you go, oh, my goodness, like, where did my bike go? Oh, man, someone stole my bike. No. And then it starts raining because you live in Orlando. And you're just like, 
Oh, and so now you have to walk home a mile in the rain and you get home and you open your garage because you have an outdoor panel thing because it was a bougie relative who had like the outdoor thing, right? The garage opens up. You walk inside and you think, I'm soaking wet. I'm gonna go inside and take a shower, but I need to take all these wet clothes and wet boots off or whatever. And I just need to put them inside. So here's what I'll do. I'll take the tarp off the old stuff and I'll put it, lay it down in the laundry room and I'll put my stuff on there and then I'll go take a shower so I don't track water in the house, right? And you take the tarp off of the stuff and underneath the tarp you find a convertible sports car. And all of a sudden you realize something. I have been using this sports car as a counterbalance this whole time because I didn't bother to check under the tarp to see what was there. Yes, it's heavy. And yes, it helped me hang my bike perfectly. But I never considered that what's under the tarp actually might be something worth exploring. And you begin to realize all the mistakes that you've made in your life by not checking under that tarp. You go, man, if I'd had a car, when I asked that girl on a date, it wouldn't have been so awkward, right? Because you're like, hey, girl, you want to go on a date? I got this cool BMX. You can stand on front. It's cool. It's cool, right? And she's like, no, wait till you get a car. And you're like, man, if I had a car, that's great. If you'd had a car also, when it rained outside, you could have driven home. And although it's a convertible, it covers up, and you could have been spared from the rain. If you'd had a car, your bike might not have been stolen. Everything, all, all of these problems could have been solved if I just spent some time examining what's going on underneath this tarp. This is what it's like coming to understand your identity. But for many of us in here, We don't, for whatever reason, spend the time taking the tarp off of our lives, examining what's under there, and making sure all these gifts and all these abilities and all these things that we have, that they're not being misused and misspent towards mistakes. If we'll just take time to really look in a true mirror and see who we are, it'll change our lives because we'll know who we are, and that'll determine everything else in our lives. And so knowing the answer to this question matters. So I want us to look at a verse, just one verse in Scripture, which begins uh, to paint a picture. There's lots of verses that do this, but they begin to paint a picture about how the Bible holistically answers this question. It's in Acts chapter 17. And so we're just going to read one verse. It's verse, uh, verse 28, if you want to read along with me. Paul is writing this, and he says, For in him, who is Jesus, in him we live and move And have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, here's the interesting thing about this verse if you've ever read it before Paul is actually quoting ancient philosophers. And what's very interesting is he is quoting directly these ancient philosophers. And so, ancient philosophy now becomes scripture and inspired in the New Testament. And he's quoting two different verses. For in him we move and li- live and move and have our being, as your ancient philosophers have said. We are, for we are indeed his offspring. And this statement here Paul is saying as he's talking to all these Greek philosophers is the quintessential summary of the Christian answer to this question, who am I? And really we can notice three things about what he's saying here. If you want to take notes, here they are. Number one, Paul is saying you are a being. You are a being. Now, what does it mean to be a being? What does, it mean, what does being mean? And here's where we're going to get philosophical, so just be cool. Just hang in there. Being basically means you uh, exist. Or to put it another way, you have substance. Or to put it another way, you are something. 
You are something rather than nothing. Uh, One of the great questions that puzzles philosophers is this question right here. Why is it that in our universe there is something rather than nothing? Why are we a universe of some things rather than nothing? And a great way to illustrate this is the um, contrast between light and darkness. Um, You know that if there's a dark room and you turn on the light, what you actually see there is light invading the darkness. It is actually invading the dark space. Darkness actually has no substance. Darkness is the absence of light. And you know this because if you have a bright room and there's a dark room on the outside and you're like, come on, darkness, ready, 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 and you open the door, you never see darkness go, we're going to invade the light. You never see that. No, it's the opposite. Light invades darkness. Light is substance. Darkness is the absence of substance. It is nothingness. And when Paul says you, everybody in this room is a being, he is saying everybody in this room is something. Everyone is something, which is, brings us back to our illustration. You know, we've been talking about this uh, all semester that around here we want to be a banquet for the broken. And although most of us have bumps and bruises and scrapes and imperfections, rather than trying to paint over this, one of the things we want to embrace around here at the table is the idea that just because we're broken doesn't mean we should try to hide that. Instead, we should embrace our brokenness because what Jesus wants to do is he wants to put light inside of us, his light inside of us. And through our chips and our cracks and our brokenness, his light will shine forth from this. Can we lower the lights and just do this? It bears repeating one more time. Can everybody see this? You can ooh and ah if you want to. There we go. Okay. Ah, right. So we've been saying this all semester, that this is what we are. We are all broken people that rather than pain over it, we let the light of Jesus shine through us. Well, what Paul is saying is this and all these metaphors in the Bible, that before the foundation of the world, before the universe ever was, there was nothing except God who was something. God existed in the Trinity as something. He was light. And then he decided to create the universe. And when he created human beings, he put his something inside of us. So that everybody who is born, which includes everybody in this room and everybody you know, everybody is something. Everybody is something. And what this means is that everybody who is something, which is everybody, that something has weightiness to it. It matters. It has a little something. That's where that phrase comes from. It's got a little something, something to it. And the the way that you measure something is you measure it in terms of its value. And because every human is a being, because every being has something rather than nothing, every being has value. The Christian answer to the question of identity is that you are a being who is something, who has value. Before you ever wake up in the morning and do anything in your day, you have value. When you are at your sickest point in the middle of winter and you're on your cold medication and you've got all the snot rags on the side of the bed because you were too sick and tired to go get the trash can, but even if you did, it's overflowing and you've got all the cough medicines and your roommates aren't coming in your room and Netflix won't even play because they're like, you're too sick. I'm afraid you're going to give this computer a virus. Like when you're at that moment and you're just like, I am death warmed over. When God looks at you, he goes, you are something and you have value. 
When you have your worst day in the world, when you've blown it at work, when you've blown it in your relationships, when you're just feeling about this tall off the ground and you go home and you're like, I am nobody, what God would say to you is on the contrary, because you are a being made in my image, you are something and you have value. And it is independent of anything you will ever do in your life. The basic Christian teaching on the question of identity is that you are a being. You have something, you have value. But you're not just a being. You are a human being. In the biblical worldview, if you've ever thought about this, there are essentially three categories of being. There is God who is just being, meaning he's something. We get our somethingness from God, but God is something. He is being. The second category of beings are angels, angelic beings. And the difference between God and angels is that God is uh, primarily invisible, And angels have a little more visible parts. They have some invisible and some visible components, although they're visible depending on what kind of angel it is. I don't want to get into technical stuff. You can kind of touch or feel certain angels or not. But the third category of beings are human beings who also have some visible and some invisible parts. So think about it. As a human being, you have some visible parts, meaning your flesh. People can see it. They can see you walk around. This is part of your human being. You are a fleshly something. But we also have some invisible parts. We think about things. There is a mental aspect to our being. We have some feelings about some things that are stronger than other, depending on if our sports team is playing or if we're watching this musical or not and they are singing the song that I like or they don't, right? Our emotions get involved. We, we are an emotional being. We also have some part of us that's invisible that is just deeply aware that there is something transcending us out there. And this is called the spiritual component of our being. So you are a human being. You are a being. There is something. You have value. You are human. You are flesh, you are mind, you are emotions, you are spirit or soul. And these are the components of how you are. Now, what's interesting about this is when Jesus is teaching uh, on what it means to love and the greatest commandment. You know, the guy comes to him and says, you know, teacher, I've obeyed all the laws. Like, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. In other words, Jesus is speaking to the fact that you and and I, as human beings, we're to grow in loving God in all the aspects of our being. Jesus knew this, and he was trying to teach this to us right there. So, you're a being, you're a human being, and finally, we understand that God created human beings to pattern our lives after his being. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being as your philosophers or as your poets say, for we are indeed his offspring. In other words, we are his children. We are part of him. We are part of his family. And part of being part of God's family is that God is all the time in our reality calling us to model and pattern our lives more and more after his being. In other words, if you've ever been someone who's thought about growth or spiritual growth, you're like, well, i I think we should grow, but I'm not really sure why. Here's why. Because we're made in the image of God. And God has made us to model our lives after him every day increasingly more and more. And just as your body grows, right, 
And some of us, our body, you know, you're at the point, I don't know, maybe most of you are at the point where maybe you've stopped growing tall. Uh, maybe some of us who are maybe in our late 30s, we're growing maybe in this region right here, we're getting the dad, dad bods. I'm not saying this is any of you guys, I'm not body shaming. I'm just saying that um, I enjoy my dad bod and we'll just leave it at that. But some of you got to kind of have that whole situation going on, right? We grow, our fingernails grow, our hair grows, our physical grows. Well, guess what? God has intended for us as human beings, as part of our identity, to grow spiritually, to grow mentally, and to grow emotionally. The Bible or the biblical definition of identity is this. You are a human being who patterns your life more and more after God and his being. So here's the big idea. This is where it all comes to. If you can remember one thing from this, it's it's this idea here. Who am I? Here's the answer. You are a human being, not a human doing. You are a human being, not a human doing. And the corollary to that is you're also a human being, not a human not doing. Let me tell you why that's important. See, some of us will go, okay, I'm a human being, not a human doing, so as I primarily understand myself, I need to understand myself in terms of my inherent worth and my value which means I shouldn't define myself or understand myself in terms of what I do. Okay, so I can't understand myself primarily as uh, an employee or as a mother or as a girlfriend or a fiancé or as this or as that. I've got to define myself in the way God sees me. Okay, and for some of us, we go, okay, so, okay, that's going to be the, the, the tough struggle for us. But as soon as I start talking about those people, the other half of the room is like, I'm not going to have that problem. Right? And you've already started this probably, and you're like, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not like those people who define themselves in terms of doing. I define myself in terms of what I don't do. I don't drink, and I don't smoke, and I don't run around with people who do, and I don't do this, and I don't do that. And look at all the things I abstain from. I'm a good person, right? And again, this is defining yourselves in terms of what you're not doing. And this is what's really, really, really challenging for us when God looks at us. He doesn't primarily identify us based on what we do or what we don't do. He sees us as his image bearers who he's given substance to and therefore worth and value to. And that's all he sees. And yes, he knows what we do and we don't do. And yes, he has a desire for our lives that we should do certain things and we shouldn't do certain things so that we can live a life that is satisfying and moves towards human flourishing. But when he holds a mirror up to our lives, what he primarily sees is that we are beings. You are a human being, not a human doing. And so let me very quickly with that move into the fourth question because I think we've answered that. We move into the fourth question, which is this is what it means for us. I think this will be where a lot of this will become clear. So let's move into some application here. So number one, if we're human beings and not human doings or not doings, then it frees us up to do, to start and to stop a number of things. The first thing it frees us up to do is to start loving everybody. To start loving everybody. To start loving everybody, okay? And I want to make sure you guys understand this. Every human being is valuable regardless of what they do or they don't do. Now, You may go, okay, I basically get that idea. Uh, Everybody is valuable. Everybody matters. Everybody has substance. I get that, okay? Well, see, what's going to happen, I'm afraid, is that some of us are going to go to our life groups this week. And in life groups, there's this, this thing when you meet in small groups as Christians, and no one in this room does this, 
But you know people who do this, right? When you move into prayer time, sometimes it becomes gossip time uh, or it becomes venting time. And this is okay. Life groups are a safe space where this happens. But just see if this sounds familiar. Uh, someone in your life group, you're like, okay, what can we pray about? And someone goes, yeah, we got to pray about my roommate. Um, yeah, like my roommate never does the dishes and uh, they're late on rent all the time and just, you know, just really chaps me. And, uh, and like they come downstairs and they're not fully clothed like when I have people over. And sometimes they come downstairs and they wear inappropriate clothing. And sometimes my roommate comes down and flirts with my girlfriend. And, you know, my roommate just smokes pot all the time. And I'm like, dude, if you're going to smoke pot, just be, go outside when you smoke pot. And my roommate has uh, a pet. And it's not like a cat or a dog. It's an aardvark. And it's just so <laughs> annoying. And if you could just pray for my roommate because they're basically the worst. And I hate them. And I can't wait till my lease is up in June, Right. Right, we've all had that situation or some of us know people who have that situation. And what we're trying to say is I'm really frustrated with my roommate. But if we're not careful to check ourselves and to check under the tarp of our lives, here's what I think we could come to believe. And that is, I matter because I'm a good roommate. And I matter because I do things the right way. And I know my roommate matters, but my roommate doesn't matter as much as I matter because my roommate doesn't do these things. And so therefore, it's okay for me to condescend my roommate and roll my eyes at my roommate and never consider my roommate's story, where they're coming from, and never enter into my roommate's space because it's smelly and just think of them as this person that I'm contractually obligated to until June when I can get away from them and finally have the peace that I so deserve in this world, right? Right? And you can think about that as your coworker who you just don't like. And you can think this way about the person on I-4 who cuts you off because it's apparently the first time they've ever driven on a highway before and they don't know about turn signals and you're just like, and you have to give them the Christian middle finger. You know what I'm talking about? Christians don't give people the middle finger. You shouldn't do this, but there's the Christian middle finger, which is sometimes the hand, what are you doing? <laughs> right? It's camouflage, so they don't know your intent. What are you doing? And then when you see yourself, there's conviction that comes over you and you're like, praise Jesus, that's what I'm doing, right? Just bless you, bless you, person. right? You see that person on the road there and you're just like, you don't matter. Ugh! Like if you ever had road rage really bad and then you start creating revenge fantasies while you're driving, some of you who are laughing really hard, just be cool around them when you're driving next time, right? Because this is the people who do it. I'm just kidding, right? So you're driving and the person cuts you off and you're like, I can't wait till we get to a stop sign. Mm, man, if I could have one free pass, be, I'd get out and I'd go over there and I'd have them roll down the window. I'd like punch through born style. Psh, and I'd like take off the seatbelt through the window and pull them out and I'd just be like, oh, right? And then I would like tell them off and then I would drive off and be like, yeah, they got the message, right? Because that's how we feel when people cut us off and what's going on in that moment, if we're not careful, if we don't look under the tarp of our own life, we will begin to condescend that person and forget that even the person who cuts us off on I-4 is made in the image of God. Therefore, they have inherent value and substance. They are someone because they are something and they matter to God. And because they matter to God, guess what? Understanding our identity means they now matter to us. So it really matters what we think about the person that we're never going to see again as they cut us off. 
and it matters what we think and how we talk about our roommate who's a jerk and who's irresponsible with their stuff. And it really matters about that one coworker who gossips all the time who I can't stand. And it really matters to the friend who used to be in my life group when we were friends, but then she talked about me and now we're frenemies. And it really matters how we privately DM people on social media. All this really matters. Why? Because everyone matters. Because they have essential worth. Number two, it means we can stop finding our worth in our work. Yeah, hold on. I need to say that again. Apparently someone was like, that, that, was, uh, that was as millennials you get for preach. Uh, we can stop. This is an Isaac Trevino phrase. I don't find my worth in my work. My worth is not in my work. But for many of us, because we define ourselves as human doings, we show up at work and we, we turn in our projects on time and we get the promotion and we're like, okay, boss, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like people? Do you like me? Do you, hey, I turn this in. You can always tell when you're in that mode of operating kind of compulsively out of your human doing, not your human being. When you're in the work meeting and someone's like, you know, we have this extra project and won't pay more. Um, but you know, it'll make me happy. And you're like, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. Or anytime you talk, like you have to do a report on something and when you're doing your report, right, you just slip in all the things you've been doing. You're like, yeah, we had a really great, uh, fourth quarter. I mean, it was really great. There's this one project. I forget who led it me. Uh, and, um, it really contributed positively to this fourth quarter earning potential, right? We just have the need to brag on ourselves and backdoor brag and slip things in. Why? Because we think that our work is what validates us. But if you look under the tarp of your life and examine it through the lens of Scripture, you will find that you're a human being. And before you ever get out of bed in the morning, you matter. And so it really, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter what your boss thinks of you, whether your boss likes you or not. You do your work to bring value to your company, and if your boss promotes you, great. If your boss doesn't know who you are, fantastic. At the end of the day, all that matters is what God thinks about you. And guess what? He's crazy about you because he made you in his image. And so you don't have to put your worth in your work. That's number two. A third one that's on here, and I'm not sure if it's in your bulletin, but I think it'll be on the screen. Uh, You can start developing all areas of your being. You can start developing all areas of your being. It may not be on the screen, but you can start developing all areas of your being. If you're a human being, not a human doing, and God wants you to grow and pattern your life more and more after him, that means you have permission to start growing emotionally and growing spiritually and growing physically and growing mentally because this is what God desires of you. And here's the reason I say that. I say that because um, I think many of us love the idea of growing spiritually as we understand it through the grid of growing mentally. We love more knowledge. We love more content. We want more books. Rarely do I have someone come to me going, Pastor Doug, I'm just really struggling in my faith. Can you recommend like an emotional retreat where I just experience the full range of emotions, happiness and sadness and depression? I just want to go like to an emo concert 10 years ago and just just hear music and just scream with rage so I can get in touch with my, I don't hear that. I hear Pastor Doug, I'm struggling. What book can you recommend? I'm like, okay, well, what area? Well, I don't know. Give me a content area. Why? Because we primarily think about spiritual growth in terms of our minds. But hey, listen, if you're a human being and not a human doing, maybe growing in your mind is not where you need to be right now. Maybe growing in your emotions is where you need to be right now. You are never going to be more fully alive than when you are growing adequately in all areas of your being. And so understanding your identity frees you up to start developing all those areas. This one, it's actually number three on here, but number four, stop using affirmation as our scorecard. 
And this comes into relationships, right? If I ask her out, she says yes. Oh, then I'm a good person. If I ask her out, she says no. I'm the worst person in the world. <laughs> if, I, if I go up to him and say, hey, boo. You know, if you asked me out to coffee, I'd say yes. And if he doesn't immediately ask me out to coffee, oh, I failed. Oh, I'm terrible. If you're a girl and you post up after the table, you know what I'm talking about, girls? You're like, there's the guy. You and your, you and your squad are like walking around them. You're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, there he is. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I wore red today. Right? Okay. And you go and you find your spot and you just like post up. Maybe you go and you get your coffee and you're like, okay, let's see if I can have him notice me. You just kind of do this thing here so that there's motion in the background. Like try, you're like, what? I don't know, right? Hey, come here, what? You call out his name and he, and he doesn't notice you. And then you get in the car ride with your girls and you drive home and you're like, he did notice me. I don't exist. I'm worthless. Ah, right? Or in your personal relationships, it doesn't have to be romantic. In your personal relationships, if you have 20 friends or you have one friend or you have 1,000 friends or you post something on social media and you don't get the number of likes you want or people are not hearting your Instagram, if, right, if all these affirmations aren't happening in our oversharing affirmation culture, guess what? You still matter because if you're someone who's made in the image of God, which is everybody, you have inherent worth. And it doesn't matter what your social media feed tells you. And it doesn't matter if he likes you or she likes you. And it doesn't matter. None of that stuff really ultimately matters at the end of the day. God is crazy about you. And that's all that matters. And finally, you can start a meaningful relationship with Jesus. If you're a human being and not a human doing, and if you're developing in all areas of your being, then it frees you up to start a meaningful relationship with Jesus. You don't have to go into your quiet time and go, okay, Jesus, this is what I got to do for you today. Now, listen, I've got a great plan. I just bought this brand new journal. It's lined. Just want to let you know. So you know I'm taking notes, right? And it's got this new Bible. I know there's an app, and I killed a tree to have this, but I did this for you, Jesus. And I got this new worship CD that I'm going to play in the background quietly while I read the Bible, and I journal, And then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to set a timer on my phone. Hey, Siri, set a timer for an hour of prayer, right? (laughs) An hour, Jesus. Do you see that, right? And then after that, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to share the gospel with 12 of my neighbors. I'm just going to knock on the door, and we're going to have that conversation. And then I'm going to go find somebody who's pulled over on the side of the road, and I'm going to change their tire for them. I don't even know how, but I'm going to YouTube it on the way over, and I'm going to figure this thing out. And then I'm going to go, and I'm going to serve in kids' ministry. Yeah, that's right, infants, right? (laughs) Like you just are like, yeah, and then I'm going to get on a plane for 36 hours. And I'm going to go to another country and I'm going to go to where it's the hardest part. And I'm going to preach the gospel to those people. When they come at me with machetes, I'm going to just look up at you and be like, I got you, Jesus, right? Like you're just thinking all these things in your quiet time you're going to do for Jesus so that he's going to look at you and be like, I like that guy. Yeah. But if you're a human being and not a human doing, then Jesus isn't requiring you to do anything when you spend time with him, except just be there. Think about this. Think about this. When, when human beings get sick and tired, uh, when their body breaks down, when human beings go into a coma, when they're in critical condition in the hospital, you never see any human beings in the hospital going, I'm really sick and I'm returning to my most basic essence. Let me go run a marathon. Or like, well, sir, I have some bad news for you. Your grandmother is in a coma. She is running the Boston Marathon this weekend. Yes. And um, 
She's just moving around frantically. I, I just hope she wakes up one day, right? No one ever gets sick and is like, I'm so sick, man. I'm just so tired. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go do a thousand push-ups right now. No, what do we all do? We rest because resting and enjoying the being of our creator is our basic essence as human beings. And so when we come to have a real relationship with Jesus, we don't need to do anything for him. We just need to sit down and go, man, I'm cool with you. You cool with me? Yeah, cool. Jesus, you're the best. And if you listen closely, he'll go, you're the best. And that's all we got to do. What if every one of our days was spent waking up and entering into the being and the pleasure of the God who loves us no matter what we do? He loves us lavishly. There's nothing we can ever do to make him love us more, and there's nothing we could ever do to make him love us less. He just loves us. And what if our quiet times were defined by that kind of being? Should we study the Bible? Yes. Should we do all this other stuff? Yes. But if we don't get to our Bibles, and if we don't get to our perfectly lined journals, and if we don't sing our worship songs, and if we don't lead our neighbors to Christ, guess what? God's still crazy about us because we matter, because we're human beings made in his image. So here's what I want to do to have us respond. I want to invite you to just close your eyes. Maybe you want to practice Isaac's thing of pause and abide. And I want to invite you to just spend about 60 seconds pondering on these last five challenges. And here they are. If we are human beings and not human doings, then it frees me up to start loving everybody. Are you someone who's here today who maybe God's convicted that there's some people that you just aren't loving because you don't think they're worth it? If you're a human being and not a human doing, then it frees you up to stop finding your worth in your work. Are you someone who's here today who, man, the Holy Spirit's just speaking to you. I look for validation in what I do and maybe need to just pray through that. Are you someone who is not developing a key area of your life? Maybe you need, in order to follow Jesus a little better, maybe as he's talking to you, maybe you need to develop your emotional or your physical or your spiritual or your mental in in his leading. Are you someone who needs to stop using affirmation as your scorecard? Are you someone who needs to start a meaningful relationship with Jesus here today? Maybe you're someone who doesn't know Jesus and you're here and you're close. Britt's gonna tell us a really cool story about that later on, but let me just say, if you need to know Jesus at the end of our time here, we've got people who are willing to pray with you. They've got lanyards on. Come find me, come find one of our staff. We'd love to talk to you about starting a meaningful relationship with Jesus here tonight.